Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. Today on the podcast is the infamous Millie Hill. Millie is a freelance journalist and best-selling author of The Positive Birth Book, Give Birth Like a Feminist, and her latest book, My Period. She founded the global movement, The Positive Birth Movement, and has a giant and impressive journalist and speaker portfolio. She started writing after she became a mother, and her writing has adapted with the times and challenges we face as women. Millie is a proud feminist and has a passion fighting for women's rights in childbirth and shining a light on the importance of women's experiences in the birth room. In recent times, Millie was cancelled for questioning a rising blanket statements like birthing people when talking about sex-based oppression and health disparities. And Millie opens up about her experience of this cancellation in this episode. Millie continues to use her voice and talks about the importance of keeping sex-based language in women's health. Millie is also a mum of three and resides in the UK. She is absolute fire when it comes to talking about women's rights, and so we chat about that very topic today. My hopes for this episode is that it be taken for what it is, an open discussion about sex-based rights. So you're very well known for speaking up for women and women's bodies, including things like pregnancy, birth, and now periods with your new book. Back in 2012, you established the very successful global movement, the Positive Birth Movement, that empowered women and mothers in prepping to give birth and birthing their way. How did you sort of get into working in the birth space and what led you to writing the Positive Birth book? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it was kind of, you know, just one thing sometimes leads to another in life, doesn't it? So I was going through the experience of being pregnant and having babies myself, which always kind of switches the light on for women, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, this is an area of life that you just don't really think about prior to it happening to you. Um, And yeah, I just... I noticed a lot of women that I knew, um, friends, relations, people I knew from the local mother and baby groups and stuff. So many of them were seeming to have a really horrendous experience of birth and that seemed to be the prevailing narrative. And I got curious about that. Um, I got curious about my own experience. I read Ina Mae Gaskin. I dreamt about having that type of birth experience as well. And it took me two births before I did. (laughs) And yeah, so I just, I, I, I also started at the time writing. I mean, that's really my, my common thread through all of this is as a writer. So initially I started writing a blog um, and I wrote about all kinds of aspects of motherhood and parenting and breastfeeding and birth but every time I wrote anything about birth it sort of really got a lot of traction and you know it felt like you know 
I was saying what a lot of other people were thinking. And so that was quite interesting. And then I just ended up doing some journalism around those issues. And then I ended up writing a book about it. And also the positive birth movement just happened alongside all that as one of those moments where, you know, Facebook was the big social media at the time in 2012. Um, there wasn't people weren't really using Instagram and Twitter at that time. And it seemed to be a real opportunity to help women to kind of connect with other women and to take back some of the power in birth in terms of being able to, um, for example, you know, it just social media just opened up those lines of communication between women. So instead of, you know, the obstetrician says, I've got to do this, I have to be induced next Tuesday, or this is wrong or that or whatever. And you can just talk to your sister or your mum suddenly with social media, you could talk to women all over the world and share experiences. So that was kind of how that came about, that idea that social media could bring new information to women, sharing stories and, you know, empowering each other. And also that it was a really positive way of challenging the negative narrative around birth, which I thought was so prevalent and actually still is. You know, although it has a lot, social media has helped with that a lot, you know, Instagram now especially, you know, you can just go on there now and just see amazing birth video after amazing birth video well that didn't exist then you know if you were pregnant in the early part of the 21st century you couldn't go and watch all those amazing look at all those amazing birth images and so the only births people were seeing were the sort of women on their back in hospital kind of tv drama type births so yeah there was a lot of I just saw a lot of possibilities there and that was kind of how all that came about really it's kind of a potted version of it (laughs) yeah and I agree with the power of social media there. Obviously there are a lot of cons, yeah. but I do sort of like to live in the pros of social media and how far your reach can go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's absolutely powerful. And I think I remember hearing you on another podcast saying that you were one of the first people to post like a really raw photo of a birthing woman. Yeah, there was a few times when I got actually banned and that yes. provided something to write about, really. It was quite interesting. So there was one quite well-known occasion. I think it was in 2014. Um, and some people will remember this because it was the day that Kim Kardashian's bottom was supposed to be breaking the internet. Do you remember? Oh, yes. So yes. she had this amazing photos taken where her bottom looked quite extraordinary, basically. It really did. Yeah. It yeah. was quite an extraordinary backside. <laughs> And it was so extraordinary that it was apparently going to break the internet. And by absolute coincidence, that day I got a ban from Facebook for sharing an image of a woman's bottom, it wasn't my own, giving birth, basically, so from behind in the birth pool. Um, And, you know, because I got banned for it, it was kind of a real golden opportunity just suddenly hit me, like, isn't this interesting that Kim Kardashian Mm. can share her extraordinary bottom and everyone can be, you know, can be right in my children's faces and that's okay and it's everywhere. But this birthing bottom, people don't want to see that on their feeds. And why is that? Because they're just basically two butts, (laughs) you know, two very extraordinary butts. So, um, yeah, there there were instances like that where, you know, Back at that time, you know, sort of nearly 10 years ago, people were kicked off social media a lot for sharing birth images, breastfeeding images, pubic hair, all kinds of stuff would get you banned. And and women really have had to push back against that in, in a way that's quite interesting, I think. And actually now it's it's a lot different. It's you don't you don't see that happening so much. So that's a good thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And well, you were kind of one of the first people to put the foot in the door, really. 
and pave the way because I, I mean, I'm sure there was many others that were banned for posting similar photos and things, but yeah, now I, I sort of log on and it's everywhere. Yeah. It's sort I mean, of normalized. Sometimes I see images on Instagram of birth that I think, whoa, you know, that is so yeah. graphic. Yeah. And I have seen a lot of images of birth, but these days you literally, you know, you can see anything and it's, they do still sometimes have those little screens across them, don't they, where you, you can have to click if you want to see it, but sometimes they don't. <laughs> and that's extraordinary. Yeah, we've yeah. come a long way just in a few years for sure. I wanted to ask you because... As of 2021, so last year, the positive birth movement closed. What was the drive behind this? And I also wanted to ask, what are some of your fondest memories about this movement? Well, I mean, it's it's, it's a long story, I suppose. It's It was always, right from the beginning, incredibly difficult to run and sustain. Um, I kind of created a monster in a way, in the sense that it was this grassroots movement. So, which is, that is a, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It was women coming together to support other women and to share stories and share support. But you, how do you run something like that with no money? And yet yeah. you, if you monetize it, you take all that kind of energy out of it that makes it so special. So all the way through, it was something that I was juggling while I was looking after my small children and unable to really do anything. Like I thought about making it into a charity and people said, oh, that's a real headache. It's really hard work to set up a charity. So I was like, okay, I'll just keep, it was like, just keep swimming, just keep swimming kind of thing. Mm. Um, So, you know, I think after nearly 10 years, it's going to be 10 years this September since I set it up. And actually it is still going to be fair. I mean, I still have the social media and I still have the website and it still exists um, in the world as a, as a voice. Um, but what I did shut down was the network of groups because that really became unsustainable and the pandemic really didn't help because then everybody had to take their groups online. And as you know, you know, we, and we might talk about it, there were other issues around, you know, language and quite a bit of bullying that I experienced. And so I just felt I can't do this anymore, you know, and, and I'm kind of at, at peace with that. But sometimes I see things flash up on my sort of Facebook memories or something and I'll see like me posting in like 2014 or 2015 or something like, wow, there's now like a group in Paraguay or wow, you know, there's, there's 300 groups around the world or something. And I think, God, that really was something special. And I kind of wish that it still existed, but then I don't want to run it. <laughs> yeah, understandable. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's not sustainable, something like that. It can't yeah. be for one person. I mean, for me, it was mainly admin. That was the, the job yeah. of running it was an administrator and I didn't want to be an administrator anymore. Do you know what I mean? I just yeah. I just got so tired of it all. So Yeah. Well, we still have your books and they're yeah. amazing. And, yeah, they're a great resource. And actually, um, it's being announced today, I think, but the Positive Birth Book's been sort of redone refreshed um yeah your second edition edition coming out in uh i think it's may uh, with a lovely new cover and some new content and some changed content and just to kind of update basically so yeah that book's going to hopefully have a new lease of life and give birth like a feminist i'm writing uh another chapter for because they're going to do a new edition of that so oh that's coming out in august i think 
Oh, I look forward to that. If I get my act together, I'd actually write the chapter. It's coming out in August. <laughs> <laughs> if I have my homework in on time. <sighs> so something I recognized in both of your books, Give Birth Like a Feminist and the Positive Birth Book, was that you are very pro-birth plans, yes. which is something most women are told don't bother with. Birth is too unpredictable. You just set yourself up to fail. Don't go in with any unrealistic expectation mm. or even wanting to change the word from plans to preferences and beyond. <laughs> yes. <laughs> why? That bugs me. Yes. Well, tell me. Tell me why it bugs you. <laughs> and what is it about a woman planning her birth that you would encourage? Well, you know, I just, I think the whole... I think you could sort of build a whole um, sort of feminist discussion just around birth plans, really. And, and well, basically, I have in, in Give Birth Like a Feminist. I write about them a lot. Why are we telling women not to bother making this document, which is we all know that if you make a birth plan, you know, 80 percent of the work of that birth plan, the value of that birth plan is in the fact that you've spent time thinking about what you want. So you've done some homework, you've researched your choices You've thought about different eventualities. Now, the one thing I do say about birth plans is to make a plan A and not to be, you know, um, apologetic about that. This is my vision for my perfect birth. That's okay. You do that in other areas of your life. We know that sometimes you can even help kind of manifest things for yourself if you have a strong vision for them and you really focus on them and you dream of them. And that is a, you know, nobody should ever be discouraged from having a plan A and a strong vision of something that they want. But also make a plan B, think about, you know, contingency plans, just as you would if you were planning your perfect wedding, you would think about what if it rains, or if you were planning your perfect career trajectory, you would think about what if I don't get that role, and I have to wait another six months to do this training or whatever. So you'd always be thinking about contingency plans. So why are we discouraging women from spending time doing that and making a plan? Um, And, you know, I think it's just to do with the power dynamic in birth that the the pushback against them is to do with the fact that they are in a way a helpful way of women taking back some power um, and addressing that kind of imbalance of power. And we see the same thing happening with doulas as well. Doulas quite often get mocked and derided, just like birth plans do. They get joked about as if they're this silly thing. You know, this silly girl's got this funny idea now. She's going to have a birth plan. Oh, she's going to have a water birth and she's going to have a doula. Ha, 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 you know. And both of those two things, a birth plan and a doula, are actually really positive things that women can do, especially in the face of a system which is sometimes stacked against women. They have thought, this system is not going to necessarily work for me. What can I do proactively to to try and, you know, take back some power and take back some control in this situation? So that's why I think they get mocked and and women get told not to bother with them because I think that they are, they're helpful. I think the more we hear them being joked about and mocked, the more we should think, there's something here that might be interesting to me. This could be useful, you know? Because I think that's why, you know, that that's why they get mocked in the first place. Yeah, I've met a lot of women um, just in conversations about their birth experience and things that, you know, I'll say, yeah, a birth plan will sort of come up in the conversation and, you know, the, the discouragement that they received obviously led them to really not thinking much about their birth. And mm-hmm. so then they walk in somewhat powerless in the system and 
they don't know how to advocate for themselves. They, they have nothing behind them besides, okay, well, I guess you're the doctor and, or the midwife. And so you tell me how to feel. And we sort of hand over everything to them and birth can that, I think that's what makes birth complicated a Mm. lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's only afterwards that you feel like you've been taken on this kind of like mad roller coaster ride where you didn't, you know, you didn't have a voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And having that birth plan in place can help to give you a voice. So why would anybody have a problem with that? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and I mean, I'm when I say I've been speaking to other women, it, my first birth was exactly like that. You know, I was discouraged because birth was unpredictable and don't expect much and this is the way it is. And I think that comes from, um, you know, the generations before me where birth was very much controlled far more than I think it is today. So you can't sort of blame them in a way, but at the same time, it's like we, we have to learn from those mistakes for yeah. sure. I mean, mm. I think that is the biggest lie that women are told basically is this idea of birth being completely unpredictable, that mm. there's no way that you can, you know, control it, predict it, have any say in what happens to you. You just, it's just literally like a lottery. You just turn up and whatever happens to you is just potluck. And that just simply isn't true. You know, we know that being in different birth environments, for example, can have an impact on the way that our body behaves. Um, that's basic biology, basic understanding of the hormones of birth. That's not that does not mean it's unpredictable, does it? It means that if the the woman comes in and turns the lights on bright, and you know, and you get a funny energy of her, and you know, the midwife or whatever, and you know, you feel that ill at ease in that space, that that could that could have an impact on the course of your labour. So you need to think about ways you can preempt that and create a circle of support around you that you feel comfortable with and all of those things. So it's not unpredictable. There are things, I think I I understand the sentiment behind it because I think what people are saying is sometimes things just, you know, go off piste and that is true. You know, we don't all get that perfect birth that we want and sometimes there are wild cards, you know, etc. But that doesn't mean it's completely unpredictable and there's no point putting any thought into it at all. That's just nonsense. Yeah. And that we don't have any control because, yeah, even if it does turn into an emergency cesarean, you still have a say. You can skin to skin or if you want to, it's, I think it's, I think the term is like maternal assistance where you sort of bring your baby up and things like there are things that you can do. And so by creating a birth plan, you can sort of discover that and figure out what you want if birth sort of does become unpredictable for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. You can still make it predictable, yeah. Just in my experience chatting to people about their birth experiences that is something that they still feel empowered through I still had a say I still had a choice um yeah and I mean you talk about that in your books as well I mean that's kind of at the root of trauma really is that is that feeling of being out of control um and not knowing what's going on and not feeling at the center of decisions etc um so someone who's had what looks like on paper as a very you know, straightforward, positive birth experience can feel birth trauma after that. And someone who's had what can look like on paper as a very traumatic, uh, you know, wild, crazy ride through birth can actually feel very at peace with it afterwards, because it's not to do with the type of birth that you get, it's to do with how you feel and how your caregivers respond to you and how informed you are kept and, you know, how, how you're treated. So. Mm, Absolutely. 
So in 2019, you published my favorite book ever, Give Birth Like a Feminist, which I discovered actually watching Birth Time World, the documentary. Oh, yeah. I thought, oh, I need to read this book. Um, (laughs) I love that documentary as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I actually made my husband watch it the other day. I'd been meaning to make him watch it forever, and I made him sit down the other day, and I was like, you need to watch this documentary with me. Yeah, those women that made that documentary are powerhouses. They are wonderful. They are. Yeah. They really are. It's so worth watching. Yeah, absolutely. So if you haven't watched it, watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but your book I found very thought-provoking and quite shocking at some. And actually, it's funny because I, I remember seeing sort of someone on Instagram who just finished reading your book and they were like, not a book I'd recommend if you were pregnant. It's not really the one that releases oxytocin. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> I think it's true that <laughs> I mean it's it's interesting. I have had that feedback. Some um pregnant women say that they really, you know, didn't enjoy reading it, but a lot of women do say that they found it. I think the word people use is galvanizing. So it kind of like you know, it's it's not a fluffy wuffy kind of like, you know, lots of lovely home birth stories kind of touchy feely feel good book at all. It's it is quite hard hitting, but it does make you think about you know, your autonomy in the process and, and what you want. So I think I'd say the majority about eight out of 10 find it helpful, even when they're pregnant. But the other thing is, it's not just for when you're pregnant. It's not, it's not really a pregnancy book. No, I think the publishers kind of wanted to make it like that because they knew that would make it more marketable. And that's why it's got the kind of like, it's got little sort of mini sections in it, which are more aimed towards pregnant women. Mm-hmm. But overall, it was more, I just wanted to sort of take a gallop through the sort of the feminist issues around birth, really. Um, and that's really for anyone to read, anyone who's interested in feminism, women's lives, bodily autonomy, reproductive justice, human rights, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, when I read your book, it it spoke to me because I think I was saying earlier, I noticed sort of this shift after I became pregnant where, you know, I was treated differently. I was spoken to differently. The concern sort of shifted from me to the baby. I had lots of expectations around me and my body and my goals and my birth, um, which ultimately impacted my confidence as well as a woman. And I didn't really have the words to articulate what was sort of happening or how I was feeling at the time. Um, But one thing that well, the main basis of the book, I think, just made complete sense to me because uh, particularly the chapter birth was the land feminism forgot. Hmm. Uh, Why do you believe feminism as a movement had left out childbirth, I say, and mothering in fighting for rights and equality? Well, I mean, I think it's complicated. I don't think it's completely left it out. Obviously, I've written a whole chapter about it and tried to to look at other writers who've touched on birth, etc. I think one of the things that has been left out and what my book is focused on is the actual experience in the birth room itself. So there is quite a lot of feminist writing around motherhood, but not so much focus on that kind of me too angle of what is actually happening to women in childbirth and the skewed power dynamic and the lack of bodily autonomy and consent and all of those issues. I couldn't find um, many writers who'd, who'd covered that. 
And I guess it's just, I mean, part of it is that a lot of feminist writers, you know, do a lot of their writing before they have kids, maybe, or they don't have kids. Um, it just seems to be something that that has been off the radar a bit, really, in terms of maybe we all, you know, everybody falls for the same narrative as well which is that you know oh birth is unpredictable and they do what they have to do to get the baby out kind of thing um leave your dignity at the door you know maybe everybody just kind of thinks this is how it, you know they really believe this is how, the only possible way that it can be and I think that's what both of my books are about saying really is this is do we really have to accept that this is the best that it can be this you know we all have to just go through childbirth and come out the other side feeling like we've been in an accident you know traumatic incident you know um damaged emotionally physically is that really the best we can do um that's what those the book is about really and i think you know there is a sort of pervading narrative that yeah you know that's just what birth is like it's just another one of those shit things that women have to go through you know a little bit like periods but like menopause you know just all so bad you know being a woman so bad you just have to put up with it really and just put on a brave face and you know you know sit on a rubber ring and it'll all be you know <laughs> don't tell anyone what happened yeah you know it's just part of the sort of cultural machine around it really um and what I've always wanted to say and, and said in that book and still keep saying is do we you know does it really have to be like that or come you know and what the really interesting thing I think is when you look at places like um Ina Mae Gaskin's The Farm or other you know centers of real woman-centered care or midwives who are working in that particular way when you look at their stats and you see the high numbers of women who are going through their care having straightforward births that they cannot wait to tell the story of, that they feel completely empowered and transformed by, as if they've gone through a real rite of passage into a, you know, like a sort of almost like, you know, in the computer game where you kind of level up. You know, some women have that experience. And how come? some care providers are getting like 80%, 90% of women coming through their care who are having that kind of experience. And yet other care providers, like in the UK, the sort of standard NHS, you know, you're looking at the, the, the numbers are just so different. The numbers of women who have straightforward vaginal births are very much lower. And the numbers of women who have straightforward vaginal births that they actually feel really empowered, leveled up by and completely transformed by are absolutely zilch half the time so why is that there's the women are, no, are not different they're not different types of women <laughs> so why can't we not learn from those models of care and, and change the way we do birth I think that's what needs to happen but god it doesn't seem to be I know and it was funny because I actually asked my grandmother who it was from that era where you know, if you were unmarried, they took your babies from you and awful, awful, awful yeah. things. Um, and she was one of those women. And, you know, so I said to her, um, do you think we've come a long way in birth? And she was like, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, oh, okay, tell me why. And, you know, so she's rattling off, obviously, the things, the traumatic things that had happened to her. And I, it got me thinking and I thought, that's not really birth, though. That's more this um the you know the culture of women and how women were viewed particularly back in those times and I thought I think we've come a long way when it comes to baby care and birthing a healthy baby and being able to 
you know, we, we've come a long way with like attachment and bonding and feeding and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think birth itself and the mother, we've just completely lost sight of that. And this is sort of where I think we're getting it wrong. So it's like, we're getting a lot right with baby, yeah. <laughs> but we're really not getting a lot right with mothers. And we're yeah. getting a lot right with safety as well. You know, yeah. isn't it great that the majority of women who have babies in the Western world these days, you know, survive and the majority of babies survive. All of these things are fantastic. And it's not, yeah. it shouldn't be polarized. It shouldn't be an either or situation. I'm definitely not advocating for everybody having their babies, you know, out in the forest alone, <laughs> you know, a thousand miles away from medical help, because that's yeah. not, we know that sometimes we need these, this kind of help, but it's just why, is, you know, why are the numbers so skewed? And and also, why are women who want to have a positive experience of birth, again, this comes back to the birth plan conversation, but why are women who want to have a positive experience of birth, you know, somehow judged as kind of a bit silly, you know, it's like safety versus experience. Why can't we have both? Why can't we have, you know, I, you know, I've written a bit about the phrase, a healthy baby is all that matters, you know, because that's what women are sometimes told. And that really is, sums it up. It's like, you know, a, a healthy baby is all that matters is is the phrase that women are told when they're kind of like thinking about, oh, I might make a birth plan. And uh, I wonder whether I'd like to have a water birth. And someone will say to them, well, don't forget, you know, it, what, all that really matters is a healthy baby, you know, focus on that. And they're like, oh, okay. It's a bit like saying, oh, you know, it's, it's all potluck, you know, you just get what you get. There's no point making a plan. A healthy baby is all that matters. It's all part of the same package. And then postnatally, women get that phrase again. Oh, you know, don't forget, you know, if they say, oh, I've had a really awful birth. I can't stop thinking about it. Well, you know, look at the baby, look down in your arms at your baby, you know, that's what really matters. And it's like, it's such a negative message because, you know, even though it might be well meant, the woman does matter, you know, she needs a space to, to, to tell that story. Um, so yeah, we, we're sort of devaluing the experience of birth and, and trying to tell women constantly that it doesn't really matter how your baby is born, you know, and do you know what, there's a parallel and I write about this in Give Birth Like a Feminist, it really reminds me of the way women used to be talked to about sex because I don't know whether they have this in Australia, but we have this phrase, lie back and think of England. And it's like, they don't say that to people now. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But there was this idea that sex was something that a woman had to do in order to get pregnant. And, you know, if she was of, you know, uh, high status, you know, to produce an heir and to keep the line going and all of that. And that it, it wasn't something that, she was expected to enjoy or participate in or gain anything from. It was just a means to an end. So, you know, lie back and think of England. And you think, when you think about the parallel with the way some women are made to feel about birth, it's, you know, it's quite strong, really. It's like, well, get up on the bed, put your feet in stirrups, and this is just a means to an end. This is just what has to happen to you. It's something you have to go through and endure and hate and struggle with and feel disgusted by. And then at the end, you know, hopefully you get this healthy baby. I was just thinking as you were saying that though, how do we sort of include men in this conversation? Because um, I was actually chatting to somebody today and they were saying that um, their partner had absolutely no idea about birth or anything like unto it. And, you know, they sort of get there and she was declining having this induction because she felt there was no need to have it. And, 
he was really angry with her like what are you doing like you know you we've got to have this baby safely and you know listen to the doctor and you know really just could not fathom that she felt that this was right and that she would birth her baby fine um and i and i you know was chatting to her and i was like yeah well how are our men socialized with birth that they're really not and i think that they get a lot of the same messages about you know the healthy baby is all that matters how do you have any ideas of maybe how we can fix this help this i don't really know the term if we need to involve men in in birth planning and in and get them to read the books and and get them to think about how they can be uh useful i was reading a birth story yesterday um from a woman whose uh, husband got really involved and went to all the hypnobirthing classes and you know she was just raving about him and he was he was saying how strange he found it when he spoke to friends who said oh you know there was i just felt like such a spare part you know it's a complete waste of space in the birth room you know because for them for their relationship he really did a lot of work and he was very present for her and very and he he was the person that supported her through everything um and so that that is possible um but you know it depends on the couple and it depends on you know how willing the guy is to to do that but i in my book in positive birth book i just the main message that i try to get to partners is about oxytocin because i think that does give men something that they can proactively do um if they understand the basics of how that hormone works and what women need in order to produce that hormone you know and then they just focus on that so you know just making sure that they 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 protect the space around their partner and you know keep the lights low keep interruptions to a minimum and approach it in a kind of sexual way basically you know the the energy in the room should be that kind of loving romantic sexual energy where you're tuned into her and you're taking your cue from her you know but maybe not all guys are necessarily doing that in the bedroom either so <laughs> depends on the guy (laughs) it does yeah you're absolutely right yeah I something that stood out to me as well in give birth like a feminist was you talk a lot about obstetric violence and things that happen in birth that they sort of happened outside of birth we'd consider them abusive whereas in birth really it hasn't it's not viewed that way Mm -hmm. um and I mean I just watched Kimberly Turbin's um birth video the other day and wow where full full on probably would not recommend um no (laughs) no definitely Um, not one if you're pregnant (laughs) no definitely not one if you're pregnant and prepping for birth um basically she was brutally abused and said no to an episiotomy and he cut her 12 times and we hear about these these really horrific accounts but i I sort of feel like obstetric violence can be far more subtle than that. Um, oh, sure, yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. a really good example if somebody says what's obstetric violence to sort of show them because it's obviously mm. so obvious. But, you know, it's interesting that we think it's obvious because the only reason that that story, that we know about that story, well, there's two reasons. One is that it was all caught on camera. Mm-hmm. And the other one is that the woman who it happened to wanted to pursue it legally and felt an injustice had happened to her. And that scenario is playing out in birth rooms all over the world and not being caught on camera or not being done to women who say, fuck this shit, I'm going to fight this. 
And even when she was that kind of woman and had it on camera, she still find it incredibly difficult to pursue it legally because a lot of the um, legal people that they went to with the tape just said, well, you know, the guy did what he had to do. You know, there was still that pervading attitude even faced with the video footage. So, yeah, you know, but like you say, that is an extreme example. And I think that there are so many other, I'm sure women listening to this will probably have, some of them will have their own stories of things that happened to them in the name of the healthy baby that that didn't necessarily make them feel comfortable. And it is a little bit like me too, I think, in the sense that once you start talking about this topic and saying to women, no, that wasn't actually okay, then a light bulb goes on, just like it did with me too, when everybody suddenly remembered like that time 12 years ago and they were like, oh, God, actually, that didn't feel okay to me at the time. And, and the reason I didn't say anything about it is because I just thought, well, this is what guys do. This is what happens to women. And just the same with obstetric violence. A lot of women will have had these violating experiences where they maybe didn't feel they consented to something or they felt like somebody, I mean, a classic example is... Um, I'm going to, I'm going, well, I'm going to give you a vaginal exam is a classic example. Yes. <laughs> Rather than this is, the, this is a, the, a possible thing that I could do now. How do you feel about it? But then if they say yes, um, and if the consent is obtained for that vaginal exam, then, oh, by the way, I broke your waters while I was in there. That sort of thing. You know, so and and then afterwards you might think, well, you know, that was probably really they probably thought they were helping, you know. And this is the thing that we women do so well, isn't it? Is we kind of like make excuses for people and we kind of like patch it over and make them feel better and we don't want to kind of come up back on the offensive or back on the attack. But a lot of women will will be listening to this right now and thinking, Do you know what? I've got a story like that and I had never really thought about it in those terms because We're made to feel like in that birth room, the normal rules don't apply. And they should. You should always have bodily autonomy. And there is never a reason why that should be disregarded, ever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I really wish we'd be having more conversations like this. I think um, by having a doula and having somebody who understands all of this going into it, because I just feel like as a first-time mum, or, you know, the first time you go into birth, like, well, you're not even thinking about obstetric violence or, or what that is or what that means. And it can be really hard to navigate in the birth room when things are maybe happening really, really quickly. So, you know, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. Okay, I've just got to try and process this somehow and move on with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, being able to have somebody that can help assist you and advocate for you in the birth room as well or help you advocate for yourself. Yes, can, and someone who's also yeah. a witness as well, you know, yes, an independent person. I mean, again, this is what, like I said earlier, this is why doulas are, can be quite a disruptive force and why in some places they actually say no no doulas, you know, because yeah. they don't want that extra person because <laughs> um, it's disruptive. But also partners can play that role. We need to get partners on board into understanding these issues as well so that they they are able to sort of, help and say no hang on a minute just back off we want to talk about this or whatever and feel that they have the right to say that because that's part of the problem as well I think is that people feel like that partly that's to do with birthing not on your own territory as well I think that's a great thing about home birth that doesn't necessarily get talked about is that 
if uh, you know I always use the example you know if you're having a home birth it's the midwife who has to say to you oh do you mind if I use your loo whereas if you yeah. have a hospital birth it's the other way around isn't it you're like oh where's the <laughs> toilet is it okay if I go to the toilet you know yeah and so you become the permission seeker instead of the permission giver just that just changes that dynamic slightly so yeah I've lost my thread there but no um, game changer basically yeah yeah absolutely it was funny not too long ago I had a male therapist say to me birth isn't a feminist issue because I had called it a feminist issue he said it's a feminine issue I hated the ignorance uh, so I of course corrected him and proceeded to tell him why it's a feminist issue thanks to your book feminine issue <laughs> but, okay. yeah a feminine issue but throughout many conversations I'd had with various people a lot of them say that they can't call themselves a feminist or support feminism anymore because it's turned into this sort of man-hating radical extremist movement. Mm. And I'll even quote some, quote, it's just a bunch of angry lesbians, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think everyone should be a feminist? And what do you think about the current feminist movement? I think that that has always been said about feminism. Yes. That it's just a bunch of angry lesbians. That's that's always been the counter narrative to feminism and the kind of, you know, the undermining of feminism since we before we were born. Hmm. So I don't have any time for that, to be honest. Um, I think feminism is having a huge resurgence at the moment. Um, you know, and again, not not that it ever went away, because that, yeah. that does a disservice to the women who've been fighting the feminist fight for decades. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is a big, a big feminist wave happening at the moment. And, you know, what is the quote? You know, I'm a woman, it would be stupid not to be on my own side. <laughs> I can't remember who yeah. said that. But Well, I get really know. sad when women tell me that they're not feminists. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't want to fight for women's rights? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm a bit confused. It's strange, isn't it? It's hard to explain, but I think it is that sort of thing of like, you know, you you don't want to be, you don't want to be, um, you know, women are very conditioned, aren't they? To sort of, you know, you don't want to be angry. You don't want to be fighty. You don't want to be negative. You don't want to, you know, complain, um, mm-hmm. be mouthy, be gobby, you know, be outspoken, um, all of these words that are kind of used against women um, and their righteous anger to to silence them, really. And so feminism just represents that aspect of of, of women, really, that some people just don't want to a- a- align themselves with because they don't want to, you know, get in trouble, be told yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It makes complete sense. It really does. And then, yeah, hearing the negativity about the feminist movement, like, oh, I can't be a part of that because... Well, I don't want to be part of something negative. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, there's so many positives to the feminist movement. And, you know, I think every movement has its flaws and, you know, we can learn from those things. And I think one of the flaws um, I was reading recently in feminism, uh, early days of feminism, was that it was sort of fighting for white women's rights rather mm. than including all women. Um, and, you know, I think that we've, yeah, we've learned from those mistakes. We're, we're definitely not like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, we are fighting for, yeah, all women. Yeah. I went to the most amazing um, feminist conference a few months ago in the UK, and it was literally so global, um, and there were so many voices there, you know, and women of colour talking about their experiences from all over the world. Um, and, you know, and so there, there was no way that... that 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 feminism could have been accused of being you know white middle class feminism or whatever yes. because it was literally 
it was absolutely eye-opening. I heard from so many fascinating women. Um, that organiza- organization is called Philia, by the way, F-I-L-I-A, and you can look them up. They have a podcast um, and they have an annual conference and a lot of the conferences put online on YouTube as well. So it's, you know, if you want to see some real feminism in action, then I definitely recommend them. Yeah, amazing. Um, speaking of feminism then and women's bodies and things and bodily autonomy, mm. your new book, My Period. Yeah. Um, brilliant book. I bought it for my younger sister. I wanted to ask what I know, but for those who haven't read it, what was the message you wanted girls to get by reading this book? Well, that your body is interesting and something to be curious about and something to be proud of, really, um, as something that works in an, you know, in amazing ways. Um, it's not, you know, I think it's, it's a counter to that, um, the cultural narrative that, you know, periods are pretty disgusting and weird and something we all have to just put up with and, you know, it was just it was just to get that message in there, really. Um, and I was actually very inspired by an Australian woman um, to write that book, someone called Jane Hardwick Collings. I don't know if you know of her, um, but she does a lot of work around the kind of arc of women's lives. And I went on. I met her when I came to Australia and then she came to the UK and invited me uh, on a workshop she did about menstruation. And instead of like I have in the past, just focusing on one element birth, she talks about the whole spectrum of women's uh, reproductive lives, I guess. And it was very, I found it very fascinating the way she drew lines between all of these experiences and how she basically said, there is no point getting a woman who's 30 years old and pregnant for the first time um, and giving her the birth book or whatever, if she's already had all of this shame and negativity planted when she was seven or eight or nine. So in that workshop, everybody went back and kind of thought about their own experiences of their first period, about their their way they were born, about the narratives that they got in there from their mother, and maybe what did their mother get from their grandmother about uh, menstruation and birth and menopause and women's bodies and kind of like just drawing all those threads together and I thought oh it suddenly you know really made sense to me that actually young girls need to be told right from the start being a woman is great you know being a woman is cool and it's interesting and it's powerful and you know there there aren't enough messages like that maybe yeah well I love that you've brought that up because I'm just going to pull up my chat that I was having a discussion on today. (laughs) You just made me think of it. And a comment was said, you know, I was sort of chatting about feminism and things. And someone had said, um, a woman's biology is what lets her down. Right. Yeah. And referring to the fact that you have to suffer through birth and breastfeeding and postpartum and recovery and you have to take time off work and things and then um you know you're erratic and emotional when you have your period and you know um conditions like endometriosis and adenomyosis and premenstrual dysphoric disorder and you know it's it's all a woman's biology and you can't be that you can't have the same things as men because of those things 
<laughs> were they by any <laughs> chance another one of the people that say that there's no point being a feminist and that it's just for radical lesbians? <laughs> <laughs> Not that person specifically. <laughs> I might just be seeing some connections here. <laughs> Well, you know, these are the people in my circles, though. Not obviously not everybody, but they stand out to me. These people stand out to me because I think, wow, you and I are very different. Well, that's what a lot of people think, you know, and that's what a lot of people are told to think. Yeah. Um, You know, that periods are disgusting and a horrible inconvenience and, you Mm. know, pointless and birth is terrible. And wouldn't it be great if we could just, you know, farm it out somehow and then there's menopause and that's awful too and yeah you know um what's the Jermaine Greer quote women are driven through the healthcare system like sheep through a dip the disease they're being treated for is womanhood yeah absolutely so, for whole lives we're pathologized and made to feel like something there is something dysfunctional about us um that needs fixing by an expert and, you know, some people believe, want to believe that still, even if you say to them, that you can say all that to them and they could say, yeah, but I hate my period. It's really awful. And you're like, yeah, I know, but we all have these bodies. We have to live in these bodies. So there must be a way we can positively reframe that and reclaim something powerful out of it rather than just feel negative. I don't know. It depends yeah. how you want to go through it, I guess. Well, I just find that, that those views are so disempowering in the first place. If you have those views, you... you it's a lot of work to change them because mm. it's difficult to change your worldview as is. But yeah, I just find it so disempowering and it's, it, it's oh, such a shame. It is absolutely such a shame because I think that by viewing your body as something powerful and capable and amazing, I think that that sort of leads throughout your life and the way that you do things and the way that you feel about yourself. Um, but I mean, it having these sort of negative messages given to you, it's it, to me, it's a no wonder more women suffer mental illness and health issues. Mm. If this is the way we think and feel about ourselves, that makes sense to me. Definitely. And it is kind of feeding into that idea that men are the kind of um, the sort of template human, that women are the kind of like the slightly messed up kind of seconds afterthought kind of thing you know and how how does that play out in you know in in your internal psychology if you actually feel that it would be better if you were not female basically that being female is a burden that you have to carry you know if you live your whole life feeling that way that's that's quite a quite something isn't it Rather than thinking, yeah, you know, I'm not, because that's the really important thing to, to stress is that I'm not saying, oh, yeah, periods and menopause and everything. It's all brilliant. It's all wall-to-wall, yeah. you know, amazing. <laughs> because it's not, but then life isn't, is it, you know, and it's just about whether you whether you can see any positives in it. And I think the positive that is in all of them is, is power, female power, um, you know, to be the, the gateway to new life, etc. You know, that's pretty cool. Um, and that isn't to say that you have to become a mother in order to have that power either just to stress that because I know these things can be quite can push buttons for people (laughs) you know it's not you don't you are still a powerful woman if you choose to practice that power in other areas being a woman is still a powerful thing to be regardless of how you choose to use your reproductive biology so you're quite well known about speaking up for woman-centered language and keeping women included in childbirth and healthcare and society. 
Can you tell me what happened in November 2020 and how this all sort of came about? Sure. Well, basically, um, I had been looking into the gender stuff for quite a while before that and becoming more and more aware of the issues around it. I think I'd got sparked into it by the phrase birthing people, which I was hearing a lot and was even using myself for a while. Um, and also the phrase assigned female at birth and assigned male at birth, which started to be used a lot. And so I just wanted to know, like, I wanted to know more about why we were suddenly being expected to say these phrases and words, some of which didn't make sense to me. For example, the idea of sex being assigned at birth has just jarred on me. In fact, it jarred on my 11-year-old daughter the other day when she had to fill in a form and it said something about what sex you're assigned at birth. She looked, she'd never heard it before because I don't talk to her about this stuff necessarily. And she just kind of looked up at me, what do they mean assigned at birth? Like someone comes along with a little wand and like... She even said that to me straight off the bat when she saw it. So even to a child, it's like linguistically off. So it just, yeah, I started to explore it basically. And then um, become more gradually. I mean, I realized quite quickly that this was a topic that you weren't really allowed to ask questions about or talk about. And I tried you know, whenever I tried to kind of explore the topic or ask questions about it, I very quickly got shut down and told, you know, there is no debate here. You're you're trying to erase people's existence or something. And I was like, oh, no, I just want to know, you know, <laughs> I want to know what this is all about. Um, so it came to a head in November 2020 when um, somebody tagged me in a face uh, Instagram post, actually, about um, it was the International Day to End Violence Against Women. And they tagged me in uh, an Instagram post, which said, amongst other things, it said on one of the slides, birthing people um, are seen as the fragile sex and that um, didn't really make sense to me the idea of the fragile sex the fragile sex of you know there's a feminist history to that phrase and it's women who are seen as the fragile sex so I pointed that out very politely and all hell broke loose um, lots of people well it was all started by one doula but then it just snowballed and went completely viral with the screenshots of my comments being shared over and over again on Instagram stories mainly and people calling me violent dangerous um a piece of shit um really you know toxic evil really horrendous descriptions of me as if i was this sort of you know <laughs> horrific terrible bad person and it was it was I have to say one of the hardest experiences of of my life it was absolutely terrifying it felt like I was strapped into something that was just out of control and I couldn't understand it you know and I think one of the things that happens to people in these situations and I've since spoken to quite a few people who've been in, in those situations is that the only way you can make sense of it is by believing what they're saying, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. So you have to say, okay, it must be me here who's in the wrong and they must all be right because they're the majority. They're this baying crowd who are all saying that I'm this, I am an awful person. And one person I've spoken to says there's another theory about it that they they describe it as un unmasking. So it's like, They've taken off your mask and they're showing the world who you really are. So even though they, everyone thought you were this nice person who was writing birth books and trying to help women have a better birth, 
all along that was just a mask and underneath you were this exclusive horrible person who wanted to be you know exclude groups of people and be unkind to people and be be bad so it's a very psychologically very very weird experience to go through and it took me a few months to kind of work out what the flip had happened basically yeah um and you know as some people know a big organization in the UK called birthrights also sort of dropped me and said that they would no longer be associated with me because of it and then I was deplatformed from a conference in New Zealand um, which I'd actually been invited to pre-pandemic and I was supposed to be going to New Zealand in 2020 but obviously nobody went anywhere in 2020 Um, so then that conference was moved online and when the people uh, in New Zealand or some of some activists in New Zealand found out that I was due to speak online um, at this conference and not about anything to do with gender just to do with birth and feminism they started a big petition which in the end was successful because they've they cancelled the conference which was kind of a way for them of getting out of it I think because they knew they know now that if they start they set the conference up again for next year they don't have to invite me because that conference was cancelled so yeah it's been quite something (laughs) what sort of impact has this had on you and your mental health or your family because this is big and having a well-known organization flat out drop you over a, a, a comment mm. essentially that baffles me i think my mental health um suffered a lot in the sort of months after it happened um until i actually spoke up and talked about what had happened to me that for me has been what's turned everything around for me internally emotionally as well as in my life um and i think that's important to to say that because i think there are people who maybe are keeping quiet about similar things happening to them and who are thinking i can never talk about this because that's how i felt it felt dangerous to talk about it i didn't even want to talk to friends about it because it was so it felt really shameful because of that thing i was just trying to describe of feeling like if if that number of people say those things about you 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 feel that they must be right you know that, that you must be this awful person and therefore how do you sit down and say to your friends, oh, I've this. Guess what happened to me this week? You know, <laughs> you don't really want to tell that story because you don't want them to sit there and think, bloody hell, you know, she must be a really awful person for that to happen to her. You know, because that's what people might yeah. think. It's just so shameful. So the only thing to do really was to just blow the whole lid off it and talk about it, and and, and which is what I did in kind of June last year. I um I wrote a blog about it, and it ended up being covered in the in the UK press, and that changed everything because suddenly everybody just realized how absolutely ridiculous it was and outrageous it was that I've been treated like that and I got this huge outpouring of support because a lot of people feel the same as I do really um a lot and a lot of feminists well I was just going to say I I've thought about this a lot actually and I thought what are the consequences of eliminating gender so I wanted to ask you what you thought about that well it depends whether you mean sex or gender yes so that's one of the big problems in this conversation is that those two are used interchangeably and always have been and in fact when I just come back to the positive birth book to edit it I realized I'd done it myself 
I wrote a whole section about, um, you know, do you want to find out the baby's gender, etc. And I did use the word sex in it as well, but I interchanged them because when you're a writer, yes. you do that because you don't want to repeat words. Mm-hmm. And they mean the same thing, right? But they don't. So, you know, sex is what you are biologically. You're male or female. And in some rare cases, you may have a DSD, but people with DSDs who sometimes get called intersex are male or female. Um, and gender is a construct, really. It's a social construct. It's um, social expectations of you. So feminism forever has wanted to destroy the social expectations of gender. Feminism has wanted to say women can be anything. They don't have to be, they don't have to wear dresses. They don't have to be the airline hostess. They can be the pilot, you know, and that's what feminism, that's what feminism has tried to do. So it does seem to be deeply regressive now that we've gone back into a point where people are saying, and they're even doing it to historical figures, oh, if you're aggressive or a warrior or an airline pilot or or you like dresses and you're a boy, you know, then that means, must mean you're the opposite sex. You're in the wrong body. <laughs> Rather than saying everyone can be whatever they want to be, we don't have to have any social expectations of gender. If girls don't want to wear princess dresses and lipstick, then that doesn't mean they're a boy. It just means that they are free to express themselves however they wish and vice versa. Mm. so because I think about so that particular post that you had commented on where they use the words birthing people and they only used the words birthing people and I think that has sort of when I say about eliminating eliminating gender just in a random google search the other day um what website was I on? I can't remember, but it was specific to birth and there was no mention of woman. It was all birthing people the whole way sort of through the article and, and things. And I'd found that a couple of times and I sort of thought, okay, we're talking about birthing people and not necessarily exclusively women anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just wonder what the consequences are for that because when we think of things like gendered violence and what else is that I wrote it down? Because gender inequality and gender health disparities disproportionately affect women and girls. Hmm. Higher exposure to violence, objectification, discrimination, poverty, homelessness for women Women are three times more likely than men to experience health problems, depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, And then things like child marriage, female genital mutilation, sexual violence, work-life balance, pelvic health. I just sort of went on this and and wondered where do women now sit if we are all just called people? Do you get where I'm sort of going? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely I do. Well, first of all, I would urge you and anyone listening to use the word sex when they mean sex and gender when they mean gender. So what you're talking about there is sex discrimination. Those things Mm -hmm. are happening to female people on the basis of their sex, not anything to do with their identity. And this is why this is happening now, because ideologically there is a movement towards um, 
prioritizing somebody's inner feeling of gender, like how they feel, whether they feel themselves to be a man or a woman and what kind of, if you like, how I would put it, what stereotypes they associate with, Mm -hmm. what gender stereotypes they feel more aligned with over the reality of biological sex. And that is why you're finding terminology like birthing people being used because it's it's saying not everyone what that's saying is not everyone who gives birth is a woman what's happening when they're saying that is they're changing the definition of the word woman from its sexed sense to mean a female person to its gendered sense to mean a feeling um how you feel inside and then what happens then is you're making woman an open category you're saying anyone who says there is a woman they so anyone who says they are a woman is a woman and vice versa but mainly it seems mm-hmm. to go the woman way very interesting yeah. and i can talk more about that <laughs> <laughs> so it's an ideological shift which we're all being expected to go along with and although you might think well what's birth and breastfeeding and everything got to do with all this it's actually got everything to do with it because a lot of the land grab is around female biology because what people want to do is uncouple the uh, the concept of woman from female biology because unless you do that you can't make woman an open category and the problem with making woman an open category that anyone who says they're a woman is a woman is there's an, there are knock-on implications for women's rights and women's spaces. We have worked hard because of the sex inequality that you've talked about. Women have worked hard to create things, for example, like uh, research into what they call the gender pay gap, but what actually is the sex yeah. pay gap. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We need to hang on to that idea of sex because otherwise, how do we chart and research yes. and record that kind of disparity? Women have worked hard to have things like female-only shortlists for book prizes or whatever. Why? Because historically women haven't even been allowed to fucking write books. And so now they want to encourage women to be platformed. If you make women an open category, then how, where do you draw the line? Do you have how many um, people born male do you allow to be on your women-only panel or your women-only shortlist? And then you've got the problems around women's sports, which obviously, again, women have fought for. They fought to have their own sports and to be recognised and to have their own competitions and their own categories. And now we're seeing it play out. We're seeing swimmers and cyclists saying, and the weightlifting situation that happened at the Olympics, where people who have got the advantage of being born male um, are, you know, competing in women's categories because women is now, if you say you're a woman, you are a woman. Then you've got women-only spaces like prisons, uh, domestic violence refuges, etc. Which again, domestic violence refuges were built, were a grassroots movement that were built by women for women. So that is a, you know, that's kind of, I don't know whether that answers your question. <laughs> But that's why, you know, and I was on this panel in Oxford that you said you saw the YouTube video of, and one of the women I spoke alongside, um, Hubo Wardere, she is a a leading campaigner against female genital mutilation. And she Mm. gets pulled up um, for being transphobic 
a lot and she just tells him to do one basically because she's just very <laughs> outspoken and, and I, when I say outspoken about a woman I mean it as a positive um, yeah. rather than a negative uh, yeah. judgment but um, you know she, yeah it's she's she's been told that the, even the term female genital mutilation is 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 unacceptable so all of these areas of, of like, women's lives are being colonized and our language is being colonized and mm. i you know what happened to me back in november 2020 i've come a long way since then to be honest and i think i'm probably much more militant than i was back then it sort because, of hardens you doesn't it yeah because you just it, see examples yeah. of it all the time and you see what's happening and it's just it's wrong you know how can you watch uh you know the person competing in the the female swimming category at the moment who's like smashing women's records and not you know and look at photographs of them stood next to their other their fellow competitors and they're they're twice the size and it's just obvious it's like the emperor's new clothes that's the way i see it now it's like literally everyone who's not speaking up about it must just be well they they see what happened to people like me and probably yes, some people absolutely. are listening to this this now and thinking oh, can't believe she's saying all that but I just don't care anymore because for me it's like the emperor's new clothes I'm not I can't keep quiet about it it's just so obvious yeah i think yeah a lot of people are silenced because of fear mm. of being rejected and cancelled and i think that's really dangerous yeah. Um, to cancel and silence people, I think it's actually quite healthy to have people you disagree with around you. <laughs> um, just a, a bottom line, you know. Yes, absolutely. And but you mm. know, maybe I'm wrong about all this, and that's okay. You know, I should still mm. be allowed to say it without having to fear for my livelihood. Why absolutely. would anybody be threatened by it if I'm that wrong anyway? Why does it matter? Why do I matter if I'm wrong? Ignore me. Carry on with your day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wrong though by the way (laughs) (laughs) just a side note yeah Um, you said something before how this is sort of happening to women and not to men in men's things when it comes to the the wordplay I guess I mean yeah that's that's an interesting area and and it is true that that it's it is mainly women's words and women's spaces etc that are sort of being affected by this this ideological change why that is is something that I still don't really fully understand but I think one thing that I found very interesting recently was thinking about different types of uh, people who identify as trans how that could be split into different different categories so you may have a young girl with um, what they call ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is happening, you know, the the figures in young girls with ROGD are skyrocketing right now. Mm. Um, And you may have a man in his 40s who's been married and had kids and has decided to transition male to female. And those two people are both put into this very big umbrella category of trans. But what I wonder is whether there's something interesting happening there um, in terms of you know, men who want to be women, they have got a vested interest in this uncoupling that I've talked about from the women's, you know, the the uncoupling of the idea of womanhood from female Mm -hmm. biology. 
And I wonder if that's what's driving it. But I'm just in my infancy in those thoughts at yeah. the moment. But there's definitely something going on in terms of why, you know, and some people said to me that this is a men's rights movement. <laughs> and I thought, when I first heard that idea, I thought that's a very interesting idea that I don't really understand. But I think I'm beginning mm. to understand it a bit more now because it does seem to be that it is about men's rights to be called women, to present as women, to be in women's spaces, to be on women's panels, to compete in women's sports. And there is an advantage for them in doing all those things. And it's taking away power again from women that women have worked hard to have. Mm. Um, and is that why it's happening that, that way around? I don't know. But I'm, I'm on a journey learning about this and reading about it and trying to figure it out. As I think, I don't know whether anybody has all the answers. It's just definitely a social phenomenon at the moment that is exploding um, and having an impact. And the people it's having an impact on most are female. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So then, Millie, what are your hopes for the future of birth, feminism, women's health, women, females? Well, you know, it's it's complicated. I think birth birth has burnt me out a bit, I have to say, because, you know, we've already talked about a bit how things don't really necessarily seem to be changing for the positive and you know, you're still getting women coming to the other side of birth feeling bad and traumatized. So it would be wonderful if that could turn around, but it's hard to feel optimistic about it. Um but I think I think for all of humans right now, I think, and this covers birth and the gender stuff as well, really, I think what we all probably need to do is to return a bit more to nature. I think with birth has become very medicalized, which, and, you know, you know, people talk about having a natural birth and, you know, home birth and everything. And it's kind of like the idea of, of going back to the natural, which we find in birth. But I think that that's having an impact on all of us in our day-to-day lives, the amount of time that we're spending on screens, the amount of time that young people are spending on screens, the amount of time that we are spending not in reality, not with our... And literally, I think we need to just all put our hands in the earth <laughs> a bit more and off the, you know, the, the smartphone. Because I think that's... I think that's the sort of common thread through a lot of this is that we're kind of slightly unhitching ourselves from our bodies and from our, you know, our, our, our reality. And we've, we're sort of, you know, we need to sort of try and get back to that. I think that's, that would be interesting to me to to think more about. um, Mm. Yeah. As we go forward. Yeah. Well, Millie, this has been one of my favorite conversations and I, I admire you in a lot of ways, but particularly for your resilience and your, your strength, but then your also your ability to be vulnerable and learn and try and, and understand willingness to understand. And, you know, you, you have a lot of those qualities that I admire and I honestly believe that you are a driving force in the feminist movement and driving force for, for women essentially. And so 
I want to personally thank you for the thing, the work that you do. And it's, it's so needed. We so need people like you. So I appreciate you using your voice. Definitely. Thank you. That's a really lovely thing mm. to say. I appreciate that. And I yeah. hope it doesn't get you shot down for saying nice things about me because that's how cancel culture works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I've seen it. I've definitely seen it. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode. Thank you.